Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shalom. It is well nigh impossible, if not downright irresponsible, to have a discussion about Dina without bringing up the subject of gender. Dina, the only daughter born to Jacob and Leah, who, upon going out to see the daughters of the land, is seen, taken, and humbled by Shechem, the son of Hamor, the chief of the neighboring tribe of the Hivites. Shechem is drawn to Dina. He speaks to her heart and requests that his father arrange for them to be married. Upon hearing the news that their sister has been defiled, Jacob's sons are distraught and outraged having been committed in Israel, a thing not to be done. Shechem's father, Hamor, is unaware of Dina's brother's acute hostility and seeks not only to arrange a marriage between Dina and Shechem, but between all the children of Jacob and Hamor. Speaking with Guile, Dina's brothers explain that any such marriages would be contingent on the circumcision of every male of Hamor's tribe. Three days later, as the men were recuperating and most vulnerable, Dina's brothers, led by Shimon and Levi, killed them all, plundered the town, and took Dina home together with all the wealth, wives, and children of Hamor. Jacob castigates Shimon and Levi for their actions, for having brought trouble upon his household, though it is they, not Jacob, who gets the final word with the hanging rhetorical question by which our narrative ends. Should our sister be treated like a whore? The tale is not a pleasant one. Found only infrequently in Hebrew school curricula or B'nai Mitzvah speeches. (laughs) But it is as much a part of our sacred text and tradition as any narrative concerning the matriarchs and patriarchs of Genesis. A full chapter of this week's Torah reading. Over the centuries, scholarly debate has revolved around the question of what exactly was the outrage, the defilement that was committed against Dina? What was the thing not to be done? The language is ambiguous. There are those who contend that the outrage was rape, a claim which, while altogether possible, has been challenged most recently by Anita Diamond, who notes the tender affections exchanged between Dina and Shechem. There are those who claim that the offense was not sexual assault, but sexual relations outside of marriage, an explanation which, while also plausible, becomes less so upon considering that the brother's demand and Shechem's kinsman's consent to self-circumcision does nothing to address any violation of Dina's chastity. The most plausible explanation 
in my mind, for the brothers' outrage, is situated on matters of tribe and gender. It was my late great professor at the University of Chicago, Tikva Frimmer-Kensky, who taught me that in order to appreciate the narratives of Genesis, one must understand that the Bible reflects a world that is patrilocal in residence, patripotestal in authority, and patrilineal in descent. To say that in English, it means that in the ancient Near East, geography and identity were shaped by the Beit Av, the house of the father. One takes on the identity of the patriarchal home in which you dwell. It is why earlier in Genesis, Abraham was able to take Hagar, the Egyptian, as his concubine, knowing that the child, Ishmael, would be considered Abraham's and not Hagar's, a pattern also present with Jacob and his many wives. Conversely, it's why last week, Jacob fled his father-in-law's home, Laban's house, because, amongst other reasons, he feared that the longer he stayed, the more likely that the faith of his wives would be defined by the idols of his father-in-law and not by him. On the subject of intermarriage, biblically speaking, gender matters. An Israelite man marrying a non-Israelite woman is far less threatening to the Jewish future than the other way around because identity is determined by the male line. Which is why Dina's brothers were so outraged. The fact that Dina married a non-Israelite is neither interesting nor outrageous. Who else was she supposed to marry? There were only 12 other eligible Jewish men at the time, and she was related to them all. The outrage was that she was taken into the Beit Av of another tribe, thereby becoming a member of that family, a breach of covenantal faith that Jacob's sons could not countenance. Such an understanding serves to explain why Dina's brothers demand that the sons of Hamor be circumcised was not laughed out of hand. Everyone understood that the relationship between Dina and Shechem could only be sanctioned if the brothers were assured that the home in which Dina lived would bear the faith of Jacob, not Hamor. The threat, to be clear, was not intermarriage. Ancient Israel had no prohibition against intermarriage. Lest we forget, our story concludes with all of the captive widows of Hamor's house entering Jacob's house, the presumption being that they became then members of Jacob's tribe. The threat, the violation, the outrage, the defilement was a reflection of the Bible's understanding of the interface between gender and intermarriage. In a world where identity is transmitted through the father, Dina's entrance into the house of another pater familias was an unthinkable threat to Jewish continuity that demanded a response. And if, at this point in the sermon, you are befuddled both by the discussion at at hand and the direction in which I'm going, let me state it clearly. The Dina story spotlights the critical role of gender vis-a-vis discussions of intermarriage and identity transmission. More directly, it is a discussion as important for contemporary Jewry as it is to understand the ancient narrative. 
with one critical caveat. Today, the situation is flipped. Today, the transmission of Jewish identity, both legally and culturally, has shifted from the father's line to the mother's line. When and why it flipped legally continues to be debated by contemporary scholars. It's a sermon for another day. But the fact that it flipped is well documented. By the time of the Mishnah in the year 200 of the Common Era, the matrilineal principle had become the norm and legal rule. It's a norm shared by Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed Jews until as recently as 1983, when the Reform movement began to recognize Jews of patrilineal descent. I do believe that this question, the role of gender vis-a-vis intermarriage and identity transmission, is a necessary, albeit third-rail, conversation for us to have as a Jewish community. 72% of non-Orthodox American Jews will marry someone not born Jewish. Numbers which are trending generationally as evidenced by the most recent Pew Research poll stating that 82% of married Jews with one Jewish parent have a non-Jewish spouse. No different than in biblical times, intermarriage is a fact of Jewish life. And no different than biblical times, gender plays a significant role. In the 2001 National Jewish Population Survey, Jewish women marrying non-Jewish men were nearly twice as likely to raise their children Jewish than Jewish men who marry non-Jewish women, a difference of 47% to 28%. Similarly, the 2005 survey of the Boston community observed that, quote, intermarried households where the Jewish parent is female are significantly more likely to raise their children as Jews. Jewish mothers married to non-Jews are near universal in reporting that they raise their children as Jews. In contrast, Jewish fathers in interfaith relationships are much less likely to report that they are raising their children as Jews. 77% of the respondents with Jewish mothers indicated that their Jewish parent encouraged them to identify with the Jewish religion as compared to only 45% of respondents with Jewish fathers. Trends consistent with the most recent surveys regarding millennial children of intermarried parents. And speaking as but one non-Orthodox congregational rabbi, the statistics are altogether supported by over 20 years of anecdotal evidence. While exceptions abound, some here in this room right now, in the context of cisgender heterosexual marriages, a topic to which we will return, it is far more likely that a child born to a non-Jewish father and Jewish mother will be raised Jewishly than the other way around. And it's here, before we begin to formulate a policy prescription, that we are, we who are committed to the Jewish future must ask the really, really, really prickly question of why. Jewish law aside, why is it that we are more confident, statistically proven, 
that a child born of an intermarried Jewish woman will identify Jewishly more readily than that of an intermarried Jewish man. And while answers abound, given that I'm not unaware of the fraught ground upon which I tread, I'll begin gingerly with an answer both oblique and ridiculous, urging you to watch a clip from last week's Saturday Night Live entitled Man Part. Did anyone see it? A comedy sketch, nice, a comedy sketch premised on the truth that in heterosexual relationships, it is the woman, not the man, who takes the lead on all matters of socialization. The joke being that men, like dogs, need a park to run around to make friends. <laughs> Notwithstanding first, second, and subsequent waves of feminism, the plans we make, the couples with whom we dine, the places we live, the communities we join, and the rhythms of our lives, Jewish lives included, are often, though not always, determined by the female partner. Religious identity is but one of many spheres whose contours are more likely but not necessarily shaped by the female partner. And if we dare to peel away at this gendered onion, then we must also take note of the systemic societal inequities that we all know exist between men and women, inequities only exacerbated by the pandemic, a hardening of historically received gender roles. It doesn't take a PhD in economics to understand why, as long as women are not paid the same as men for the same work, that men will continue to predominate in the role of the provider while women in the domestic and thus the religious sphere. The feminization of the religious sphere has been well documented over the last 50 years, extending beyond the home and into Jewish institutions themselves, a trend informed by the gendered manner by which society values, or more precisely, devalues volunteerism. There are a variety of reasons why Jewish identity, independent of Jewish law, has shifted to women, some having to do with the strengths of women, some having to do with society as a whole, and some having to do with inherited definitions of manhood. Men have a hard enough time, as the joke goes, asking for directions. But if you're a man who, despite having attained an educational and economic status beyond the wildest dreams of generations Jewish past, has a hard time decoding Hebrew letters, never mind saying Kiddush or leading a discussion with your children on the Torah reading at the Shabbos table, it takes courage, humility, and patience on a heroic level to pause, to seek help, to get a tutor, so you yourself can be positioned to take point on the Jewish life of your household. And while we might understand and even sympathize with the impediments preventing men from taking the lead on Jewish life and living, the consequences are devastating. Generations of children raised without the shaping educational influence of fathers on children's Jewish character. So where do we go from here? Given the statistics, I suppose one could argue that a new policy on intermarriage should emerge, one that is data-driven and results-oriented, whose success is measured by way of Jewish futures created. Rabbis, 
you can officiate at weddings of Jewish women to non-Jewish men because the children of those weddings will more likely be Jewish. One could, I suppose, make exactly the opposite argument, that it is the Jewish men marrying the non-Jewish woman for whom a rabbi should be present. Is it, after all, at all surprising that such couples are disinclined to raise their children Jewishly when Jewish law in the Jewish community tells them that the mother is not Jewish? Are we not living a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is it not these couples more than anyone else who would be the immediate beneficiaries of a warm embrace from an inclusively-minded clergy? And while all of these ideas are deserving of a fair hearing, allow me to offer my own thoughts on the matter. What if, what if all of us here in this community decided to take personal agency for our own identities and shared Jewish future? What if Jewish men married to non-Jewish women and Jewish women married to non-Jewish men were to agree that when it comes to raising Jewish children, there is no fairy dust in this world. If Jewish identity and Jewish continuity is the desired outcome, that it's an outcome that will only happen by way of intentionality, effort, humility, and hard work. What if we stop talking about Jewish men married to non-Jewish women and Jewish women married to non-Jewish men and treated everyone like an adult? stakeholders accountable for the decisions that they make? What if we created a synagogue and society that that valued the volunteer hours of women and men equally, that valued domestic roles, whether filled by men or women, that sought to create an equitable society that celebrated lifelong learning for women and men, that met people where they are and empowered them to be shapers of Jewish identities of their children? What if we stop thinking that a Jewish family is defined by two Ashkenazi heterosexual partners and acknowledge that we have Jews both single and married, straight and queer, Caucasian and Jews of color, cisgender and trans? What if we stipulated that our measure of self-worth and success as a Jewish community is not about throwing up impediments to Jewish engagement, but creating a community where the riches of our tradition and covenantal possibilities are made as accessible as possible. This isn't a free-for-all. There are boundaries. A community that stands for nothing falls for anything. But to be a big tent means that we must be willing to house all those seeking entry Every sincere soul seeking admission, deserving to be treated with the infinite dignity as befitting a person created in the image of God. I've said much, more than I had planned on saying, things about which I have thought about for some time. A conversation, hopefully, that merits to be unpacked, discussed, debated, and acted upon. The Dina story bears with it many lessons. Gender, tribal identity, intermarriage, fear of the other, amongst others. Its most enduring lesson, tragically though, is of course Dina herself. Not a word, not one word do we hear from her. Her voice, her feelings, her love, her fear, her pain, her hopes, nothing. Not a word. 
So maybe the first step in our communal conversation is not so much to speak and do, but to listen, to acknowledge all the dinas, all the muted voices in our midst seeking voice, wanting to be heard. There are a whole lot of people who don't fit into neat boxes, but love the Jewish people, who have our best interests at heart, and who seek to be part of shaping our future. So let's do what should have been done way back when. Listen more and speak less. And maybe, just maybe, together with all the inhabitants of our land, we will arrive shalem, whole, at one and at peace with our Jewish future. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.